Hello, and welcome to another DBSA podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from Dear Author. Today we have a quiz for Jane that is mean, but then she does really well anyway. And we do a whole long discussion started by Reader Mail. You guys send really good email messages. Plus, we have a special piece of information from Lauren Willig, which is included in the entry of the podcast, which you'll see on both Dear Author and on Smart Pitches Trashy Books, answering one of the questions that one of our listeners sent in. I hope if you are inspired by the listener mail, because we love listener mail, if you would email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com, we will include your email message in another episode. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater, and I will have information at the end of the podcast about who you are listening to. And now... On with the podcast and the quiz. So what I have here is a quiz for you. And I thought about putting this on the site, but it'd be much more fun to torture you with it. What I have here are several descriptions of books and several descriptions of books that are not real that I made up. And this was entirely inspired by Linda Holmes's quizzes on the podcast uh, Pop Culture Happy Hour, where she will give them a whole bunch of television shows that are real and then one that's fake and they have to guess which one is the fake one. Like Dog with a Blog is unfortunately real. And I thought well, if we did that with romance novels, it would be even more fun. So I have here a bunch of different descriptions and you have to guess which is the real romance. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Last night I ran this by my husband and he said, you know, she's going to say, oh, I totally read this because <laughs> you read like three books a day. All right. Which of the following two is an actual book? A wounded secret agent's identity is safe until his physical therapist arrives for an appointment with him as the dom in a Berlin club and they fight crime. Or a rogue Irish agent introduces an innocent secretary to London's bondage underground and they fight crime. Uh, they both sound real to me. <laughs> yes, I did a good job. Um, Secret agent, physical therapist, well, or Irish agent, innocent secretary. I, well, there, <laughs> there was an Irish agent, innocent secretary story. Um, it was self-published, I think. I did not read it. It was self-published, but then it was purchased, I think, by Simon & Schuster. I think the author's name is like Alexandra something or other. So I'm going to go with the Irish agent. You are right. That is A Dom is Forever by Lexi Blake. Your memory is quite good. <laughs> so the real one is the rogue Irish agent introduces an innocent secretary to London, London's bondage underground and they fight crime. Okay. Which of the I didn't know the last part that they fought crime. There is fighting of crime. Yes. <laughs> okay. Which of the following three is a real book? A fierce hidden sentinel were panther meets her mate, a guy named Brandon. A shy, timid werewolf meets her mate, a guy named Brad. Or a sensitive, battered were fox meets her mate, a guy named Brute. Well, um... <laughs> <laughs> 
So where Panther and Brandon, where Wolf and Brad, or where Fox and Brute? Jill Miles wrote a really cute novella with a where Fox. But the first one sounds like a Pamela Palmer book. But I, I'm going to go with the last one because you read that book and liked it. Uh, you are right, but it is not a Jill Miles book. The sensitive battered were fox who meets her mate named Brute is Fierce in Fur by Celia Kyle. And unless that's one of Jill Miles's pseudonyms, I don't think it's her. It's not. Ah, yes. I can't believe that I'm getting these right. I know. <laughs> for the wrong reason. All right. Are you ready? Which of the following is real? There's only two. A former BDSM club employee is attending culinary school at night when he cuts himself badly. The ER doctor who sews him up has ideas about a long-term cure for what ails them both. Or a former BDSM club employee is renovating a building which houses the other BDSM waiters when the plumbing fails. The contractor who comes to fix his pipes is determined to make sure he's the only one to snake that waiter's drain. Well, this sounds like an MM, and I don't read a lot of those, but I'm going to go with B, the contractor. Yes, you are right. It is Box of Nails from the This Old House series by Shawn Michael. Well done! Yay! (laughs) Which of the following three is real? A gay werewolf pack alpha seeks a submissive werewolf and finds one, only it's the pack's former alpha. A gay werewolf pack alpha seeks a submissive werewolf and finds one hiding in a tree. Or a gay werewolf pack alpha seeks a submissive werewolf and finds one living with his parents. Oh, it's definitely A. The conflict would be too delicious for an author to pass up. No, unfortunately, it's the gay werewolf pack alpha seeks a submissive werewolf and finds one living with his parents. It's called Called to Mate by Lynn Tyler. But if someone wants to write the former pack alpha becoming a submissive, that would be incredibly awesome. I'm kind of pleased I made that up. All right. Change of pace. Which of the following is not the pseudonym of a lesbian romance author? (laughs) (laughs) Are you okay? (laughs) All right. This one's pretty hard. Which of the following is not the pseudonym of a lesbian romance author? Lila Bangs, Harper Bliss, Beth Wilde, or Simone Dovetail? The first one. Unfortunately, no. Layla Banks is a real author, as is Harper Bliss and Beth Wilde. Simone Dovetail is not. So oh, see, I thought the last one was so crazy. It had to be something. <laughs> All right. Which of the following is real? And I'm betting this might have been pitched to you. Charmed by the man who buys coffee from her every morning in her cafe, Sarah doesn't realize that he's a billionaire werewolf who's into BDSM, but healing from the murder of his panther sub. Or, fascinated by a handsome man eating alone in a restaurant, Sarah doesn't realize that he's a billionaire werewolf who's into BDSM, and now they're both in danger from a shadowy menace. I'm going to go with A, only because that's a story I'd like to read. (laughs) I'm sorry, it's B. Billionaire werewolf into BDSM in a restaurant and a shadowy menace. That would be Her Billionaire, Her Wolf, His Every Desire, a paranormal BDSM romance by Emily Ames. That would be A-I-M-E-L-I-E, last name A-A-M-E-S. That author has taken more than her share of vowels for her name, just so you know. Unfortunately, the murder of his panther sub, I made that up. I'm sorry. This means I just have to write really bad Um, paranormal BDSM romances and then start pitching them to you. Which of the following is an actual line from a book blurb? He looks like an alpha male but acts like he never learned to talk. 
He looks like an alpha male, but acts like the runt of the litter. He looks like an alpha male, but acts like an interior decorator. The last one. Yes, that is an actual line from a book, Snowballs by Tara Lane. Okay. Which of the following is a real book? Slade, and that would be S-L-A-Y-D-E. Of course it is. Slade is a motorcycle-riding, leather-wearing badass who can't believe his deployed sister hired a Manny instead of asking him to help. But when he tries to fire the Manny, the Manny refuses to leave. And that's when Slade realizes he knows him from the bar the other night. Or, Slade is a Manny for a mom and her two kids. But when she's deployed, her motorcycle-riding, leather-wearing, badass brother shows up to help, and that's when gay mayhem, or what I like to call gayhem, ensues. I think it's the last one, because I think I've actually heard of that book. Yes, that's Manny's Incorporated by Shawn Michael. You are correct. I'm going to have to make the next version of this quiz a lot harder. All right, last one. You ready? A small-town sheriff is tempted by the sight of his longtime crush, the town judge, wearing tight spandex when both men run the local marathon. Or, a small-town sheriff is tempted by the sight of his longtime crush, the town librarian, wearing tights when the, when the sheriff's sister convinces both men to dress up as Santa and his elves. I, I'm going to go with the last one. I've not <laughs> heard of either book, but the last one just seems to fit. Um, I'm sure it's some Christmas book. You're totally right. It's The Lawman's Librarian by Rebecca Brochu. <laughs> you did very, very well. I'm going to have to make the next edition of this quiz a lot harder. How sad. Well, um, perhaps I've just read too much, uh, or the tropes are too <laughs> recognizable. <laughs> but I, I think I got, what, two wrong and four right or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah, you did very, very well. Shall we move on to reader mail? Yes, I thought we had some great reader mail. We do. Is there one you want to start with? Let's do um, the one about the quality of romance, because I think it's pretty timely. Yes, yes it is. Dear Sarah and Jane, I have been listening to your podcast for several months now. I love to hear you talk about romance novels. Most of my romance novel discussions are online, so it's fun to listen rather than read. My question has to do with quality of writing in romance novels. I know a lot of readers consume romance novels voraciously. I've been an avid reader of romance since I was 12, and I have gone through phases in my life where I could read seven books a week, though currently I read only one or two a week. I haven't really questioned the quality of them per se. Everyone I know that also reads romance discusses the quality of the book based on personal reaction. So this book is well written is synonymous with I liked this book. Obviously, anytime you're talking about good or bad, anything, it involves an amount of subjectivity. But from listening to the DBSA podcast and the way you both discuss the specifics of voice, prose, editing, grammar, etc., it makes me wonder, how do you judge the quality of writing in romance? Have you ever read a romance that you disliked but that you thought was well-written or read a book that was horribly written but you loved anyway? Do you have different criteria for judging the writing in romance versus judging it in other types of fiction? I'm guessing I'm asking what, makes, what you think makes a quality romance novel. And she goes on to say that romance reading is a favorite hobby of mine, but it's something I do for fun and not something that I felt the need to intellectually dissect. 
Last year around this time, I read Fifty Shades of Grey because it was recommended to me on Goodreads. I really liked it. I was right there with Anna in Chapter 4 crying because the guy she is attracted to refused to kiss her. I guess for me, to think a romance is good, I have to emotionally connect with the characters. And by the end, I have to believe that they are in love and committed to each other. If a book doesn't do those things for me, it is bad. And if it does, it is good. That's a bit oversimplifying, but basically true. Then a few months later, I became aware of how popular Fifty Shades had gotten and so many people were reviewing it and negatively critiquing it. I think that mainstream media is biased against romance novels, so I take their perspective with a grain of salt. Also, the main discussion seemed to be, oh my God, women like a book that has sex scenes in it. But many people whose opinion on romance novels I respect pointed to its bad writing. After that, I started rereading it with a critical eye and started to notice things like the repetitive prose and the overuse of cliches, and it got me thinking about why I read romance novels and what qualities are shared by all of my favorites. I can't remember ever finishing a book and thinking, wow, that was so well written, but I have finished a book and thought, I love the characters, the plot, or the relationship. Clearly, the writer's doing their job if the readers enjoyed their book. The purpose of fiction is to entertain. So do you think reader enjoyment is a good scale of writing quality? How much do you think your enjoyment of a book is subjective versus objective? I have thought a lot about these things recently, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. Sincerely, Jennifer. Jennifer, that was like the best letter ever. Thank you. So, Jane, what is your response to that? My response is that there is a um, baseline level at which we can acknowledge that there is good writing. And what I mean by that is grammatically correct, fairly uh, typo-free, with command of the English language, so I think that there are some objective signs of uh, good writing. Above and beyond that, I think it is quite subjective. When uh, you have an emotional response to a book, it is because there's something about that book that appeals to you, and that whatever appeals to you might not appeal to the next person, even though the quality of the writing is obviously not changing from person to person. The people are responding to uh, things differently. Also, I think that there is a huge difference between good storytelling and good technical writing. And by that, I mean, I think that some people can become uh, a decent writer, but there are some people who are really gifted with storytelling. And uh, E.L. James is a gifted storyteller. She told a story that a lot of people responded to emotionally. Uh, There are a lot of authors like that. Kristen Ashley is another author who I think is a great storyteller. Laura Lee is a great storyteller. Um, Technically, these authors aren't terribly good, but there's something about the type of story that they're able to tell that uh, resonates with a broad uh, scope of readers. And and E.L. James and Laura Lee and Kristen Ashley write totally different stories, so you can't say that whatever they're appealing to is the same. But what Uh, readers are reacting to uh, is emotional uh, response. And all readers, everybody comes to a book with their own uh, baggage and prejudice and bias because we can't escape that. It's just how we're formed. And so when a reader comes to a book, she has a certain predilection for books that she likes. I have a certain predilection for books that I like. And it and it's taken me some time to understand that I respond to certain tropes really well. And so a book that has a trope that I like, um, I might feel a more be more positive in my praise of that book than a book that was equally well written but doesn't have a trope that I respond to. So I think that that's where you see a lot of difference in opinion between a reader liking 
one book uh, and the next reader disliking that book, it's not necessarily because the book was poorly written or it's not necessarily that the book was particularly good, but that the trope or the emotional response that the book is evoking is different from reader to reader. So I think, so in <laughs> some, that? just listen to her in some, I'm sorry. I don't know so if y'all know some, this. I, Jane is totally an attorney and you're getting attorney schooling right now. <laughs> so it, uh, to summarize, I think that there is definitely quality of writing. And I think that like a good editor can raise a mediocre writer into an upper echelon writer, but that storytelling is a gift. If you think of book writing in in terms of like athletics, Michael Jordan said that 95% is effort and 5% is skill. And in in some sense, writing is that way too. But sometimes that 5% can elevate a book with mediocre writing to become a phenomenon. I'm done. I don't have anything more to say. Okay, so, um, or is, is we going to move to adjourn? <laughs> Does the jury have to go get lunch? <laughs> jury, you're yes, allowed to go to McDonald's, go get food, come back in 30 minutes. Or are they sequestered? They have to go back to the Holiday Inn. No, they, they can go up, but they can't talk to anyone else. Oh, fun. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, I, I completely agree with Jane. And there really are some storytellers who can grab a reader And even if the reader is able to say, I know this isn't well written, I understand, I can see the errors, but I can't stop reading. That's that's what I tend to call crack. And some writers just have crack. And sometimes the crack works on me and sometimes the crack does not. And one great example like Jane brought up is Kristen Ashley. The Ashley crack does not work on me. But much like Fifty Shades and Twilight, I can read it and see, okay, I understand why this works on some people and I understand why it doesn't work on me, but I can see the crack. I can identify that the crack is there even though I personally am not savoring the crack. I have a degree in English and I went to graduate school for English and I also learned Spanish when I was 15 and had to take advanced level Spanish grammar classes, which then made me learn English grammar because if I wanted to translate anything into Spanish, I had to understand parts of speech. So I have a pretty good knowledge of the history and parts of English and then the parts of language in other languages as well. So I really notice grammatical errors. They don't bother me intensely. Like it's not like I take them personally or I get really mad, but there is – okay. I will admit to having read Kristen Ashley's Mystery Man. And I made myself read it on the treadmill so that something good would come of my experience. And there's one scene where the heroine is an editor and she references other books written by Kristen <laughs> Ashley. And I, I know exactly <laughs> what you're going to talk about. Okay. So <laughs> she's referencing other books written by Kristen Ashley. And was it – Jane, was it you that called it Word Jamboree? I think it was you. Something like that. Yeah. It's like, you know, let's take a bunch of verbs and some adjectives and put them all in the same sentence. It doesn't have to make sense. They just all have to be there. That's kind of one of Kristen Ashley's major flaws. There are sentences that don't make any goddamn sense. And I am, I have been reading these sentences and reading over them and reading over them and going, I don't understand what she means. I'll just move on. And while I'm identifying the crack and I can understand the allure of this book and I can understand all of the tropes and elements that are drawing readers in and I understand why people are calling them Pringles and you can't just eat one, there's this one scene where the heroine, who is an editor of books, is referencing all of these other books written by Kristen Ashley and she says she wishes she would have had the chance to edit them, which I laughed 
so hard I had to step onto the side rails of the treadmill because I was about to fly off the back. I was bent in half laughing. People in the gym at the hotel are staring at me at this point because it was so completely ludicrous that a book that was so badly edited would reference being edited by the character who herself makes no damn sense. So I'm aware of this, but I don't take it personally. There are readers who take that personally, much like there are readers who take errors in historical research personally and and are outraged and insulted when they find, in their opinion, an author hasn't done their homework. Those are, I think, as close as you can get to objective. That's as close as you can get to objective analysis of the quality of a book, whether it's factually correct or factually incorrect. And then you can go and find your facts and say, see, and then like, you know, like Jane, you can make a legal argument. And then there's grammar. Grammar has rules and some of them are fuzzy and some of them are shifting as the way we talk changes. But grammars, grammar rules are identifiable. You can go and cite them. You know how to use this comma and you know how to use a semicolon. But those are objective standards of quality in some respect, whether something is factually correct, whether something is structurally correct. But it is really hard to fake the crack. It's really hard to fake the, the storytelling talent. And it's really hard to fake what Jennifer talked about the emotional connection that she has to the characters. And when she said that she loves the characters or plot or the relationship, that's the storytelling that Jane referenced. And that's the, the quality of telling a story and the crack, the, the allure of the tropes that you can't not keep reading. That's not something that you can fake. And that's not something that is easily objectively identifiable because it works on some people and it doesn't work on others. That's why there's so much romance, I think. When you talk, when in, in Jennifer's letter, when she said, this book is well-written becomes synonymous with, I liked this book. Those are not always the same thing. And I would argue that the most popular books that have people absolutely insanely gloriously happy about them are often not the most well-written because they have more crack than, than skill. But I also think that the way in which ordinary readers, readers who have never run a blog or reviewed on Amazon or have ever heard of Goodreads, readers who go to the library or go to the bookstore or buy books that show up on their Kindle menus, as readers more and more learn to interact with books and, and are encouraged to review them, especially by digital devices when you finish a book, would you like to tweet it? Would you like to give it some stars? Would you like to make it dinner? What would you like to do with the book? There's lots of options here. Readers are now being forced to, de to describe what it is that works and doesn't work for them. And there's – I think what you see in the beginning is a very limited set of phrases. This book was well-written. The characters were true to life. Um, this was such a page-turner. I couldn't put it down. Or uh, as Ron Charles says, unputdownable. You, you see these same phrases over and over. And for that reason, this book was well-written is often synonymous with I liked this book because – when you have a reader who isn't accustomed to critiquing and analyzing and objectively picking apart why they liked a book, which is what you know Jane and I do all day, you don't have the ability to identify easily what it was that you liked. And honestly, being able to identify what it is that you like about a set of books is tremendously difficult sometimes, but also very empowering because like Jane said, once you know what tropes work for you, you can go buy more of them and then you're very happy because you have all the crack you need. When you're working with a very limited set of identifiers of what you think makes for a good book and you're not quite sure how to describe what worked, you're going to reuse those same phrases that you've already seen. 
But once, as Jennifer pointed out, once you start to read critically and you start to look at something objectively and thinking, okay, this worked for me, why? Then you begin to see the positives and the negatives and the flaws and the benefits to the book. And most of the time, that's what really good reviews do. They identify what really worked well and what really, really did not work, unless the book is complete crazy sauce and then it all worked because it was insane. And those are also some of my favorites. The problem, I think, with Kristen Ashley was that there wasn't quite enough crazy sauce for me to um, engage with it because all of the tropes that were working on other people don't work on me. I seem to be trope immune to that particular set. So, Jennifer, I hope that answered your question. That was a really really interesting letter and a really good question to ask. And I'm really glad that you emailed us. If you have ideas of what you think makes good quality writing and how you judge writing in a romance novel versus other fiction or different kinds of books that you've liked, please feel free to email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. Okay. This is a question from Catherine. Hello, ladies. My name is Catherine, and I have a possibly stupid question for you. I heard on the last podcast that Sarah has started reading the Pink Carnation series by Lauren Willig, and I love those books. I find them the perfect mix of romance, humor, suspense, and time jumping that I marathoned all of them from the library. So my question is this. Why are those books not shelved in the romance section? This may have changed in the, few, in the last few years, but when I was looking for her books at BNN, when I first got into her, I had to ask the shop attendant where they were after I failed to find them in the romance section. Let's be honest here. The series is a giant interconnected group of historical romance, and I don't understand why her books are shelved in fiction. I remember when Sarah was at RWA and interviewed some publicists from Sourcebooks, they were discussing blurring the lines between women's fiction and romance. Would the Carnation series be considered a perfect example of this? I'm curious to your answers because I really can't figure it out for the life of me. May you continue kicking ass, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Yes, it is balderdash, but here's your problem. You have a book like the Carnation series that is a mix of romance, historical, contemporary, mystery, suspense, um, even some military intrigue, and time jumping. Where does that go? It's hard to identify what the predominant element is because I think if you got a bunch of Pink Carnation fans all together, they might not all say it's a romance. They might say it's historical fiction. They might say it's women's fiction. They might just say it's fiction. And when you can't identify the predominant element when you're talking about bookstore shelving titles, it gets put in fiction, which is like saying, hey, it's a book. It has pages and numbers and maybe also some words. It's the most bland catch-all description, but that's where it gets put because when you blend that many elements, it becomes difficult to identify the predominant one that indicates where it should be shelved. And sometimes when you're in the marketing department, not that I ever am, but when you're in the marketing and sales department, you have to figure out what's going to sell this book. Is this going to sell better if we market it as fiction with historical intellectual elements, or is it going to sell better if we market it as a romance? Because those are two very different groups of readers and what gets marketed to one would never reach the other. I get a lot of romance and women's fiction pitches are probably 10% of that because that's not predominantly what I read. That said, when I do read some women's fiction with strong romantic elements, I like it a lot. Another example, and I hate to be talking about myself, but when our book, when Candy's in my first book, Beyond Heaving Bosoms, came out, it is nonfiction. It is nonfiction about romance novels. 
No one knew where to put it. It was officially tagged as women's studies slash humor, and there is no such shelf because I don't know if you've been aware around women's studies. It's not like it's filled with a lot of humor. There's no women's studies slash humor shelf, and when it came time to actually shelve the book, people didn't know where it was. Like we had to have a contest where people could go find it because it was found in romance, even though it's not fiction, computers, even though it's not about computers. It was found in literary fiction and literary studies. It was also found in westerns and in mythology, and at one point it was found in um, – Oh, and also found in the half-price pile, but that's totally cool. If you don't know where to put a book, it kind of ends up everywhere. And if you're the person in charge of trying to figure out how to sell the book, you have to figure out where am I going to sell this to the greatest audience. And I think with Lauren Willig, they actually did a pretty good job because I have met a number of readers from different genres who are familiar with that book, and they're not necessarily readers who would identify as romance. One of the problems, and this is sort of tangential, that I think many booksellers have, and I don't mean the people who sell books in a store, but people who represent a publisher's list and want to sell those books into bookstores, the people who are in charge of marketing and sales of individual books. One of the problems they come up against is that readers who are romance readers and identify themselves as romance readers like to look for romance. Readers who are not romance readers, who are aware of what romance is and don't think they're romance readers, I think are very difficult to convince that they've liked and enjoyed a romance. And you see this, I think, most notably with Fifty Shades because there's a lot of people who say, well, that wasn't a romance. Oh, the hell it wasn't. It so was. Don't lie. It was like Harlequin Presents with a giant store-bought frosting dollop of vanilla BDSM on top. Come on. What a romance. But if you speak to a lot of people who loved it, they're like, well, I don't usually read romance and I don't think this was a romance, so I'm going to look for something else. And that's why you see a lot of contemporary romance with erotic content being remarketed not as romance, but instead as something with a lot of grayscale on the cover. People who are readers, who read a lot of fiction, who know what romance is, and I want to and, and identify themselves as not, capital N, romance readers, capital R, capital R are not going to be convinced, no, really, you like romance, because they often carry with them some preconceptions about romance and what it is and what it isn't. And people like Jane and I and a lot of other readers on the internet, we spend a lot of time trying to pick apart those preconceptions and deflate them a little bit because they're often filled with a lot of hot air. But when you're marketing a series that combines romance with other very powerful popular elements, sometimes marketing it just as a romance could be to its detriment if you want to spread the readership of that book as widely as possible and saying hey i wrote a book it's fiction is like hey i wrote a book and it's got words like that could be anything so i hope that answers your question it's it's a very hard question but at the on the other hand it's awesome that you found a really good series to read and i hope if you listen to the most recent podcast you heard about lauren willig's book coming out in um april which i'm probably going to la- allow myself to read soon, even though it's early, called The Ashford Affair, which I have been pitched as Downton Abbey meets out of Africa. So a funny thing happened while I was editing the podcast. Lauren Willig emailed me about something completely unrelated. And I said, were your ears burning? Because we were just talking about your Pink Carnation books during our most recent podcast and why they're shelved in fiction and not romance. And she said, you know, I have a whole story about that, including the fact that it was originally supposed to be chick lit historical and it totally had a historical style slash chick lit style cover. And she showed me the original cover. So as a response to your question, she has written up a little story about how the book went from chiclet to historical fiction to 
something else before it was even released, all while it was being edited and marketed and planned before it even came out. And it's really funny. So I am going to include that with the podcast entry and I hope you will go read it because it is hilarious plus it has the original pink carnation it looks like chiclet cover and both Lauren and I agree that this purse is pretty phenomenal and she tells me she went out and bought it and then promptly wore it out because it was so awesome she used it all the time so definitely go and look for the podcast entry that goes along with the posting of the podcast on smart bitches or dear author to read the full Lauren Willig uncensored version of how her book went through at least three different genres before it arrived to be published in fiction. And thank you to Lauren Willig for that because it was really cool and totally unexpected. All right, I have a letter here for you. Are you ready? I have just recently stumbled across your podcast and just listened to several in a row. My husband keeps wondering why I'm shaking with laughter next to him in the car. Thanks for an entertaining hour about my favorite pastime. I feel compelled to write because of your comment, Jane, on professional cyclists in California. I live near the Santa Cruz Mountains, and there are cyclists every damn where. They practice every weekend in their sponsor spandex and scare the crap out of me as they come whipping around blind mountain curves. So it actually struck me as pretty plausible for a small California town. Happy reading, Colleen. That letter made me laugh so hard. Yes, and uh, when you sent me the email, I laughed out loud as well, too. So <laughs> in the future, if there is a small town in California, I will expect at least one of the heroes to be a professional cyclist from now on. Yes, one per town, possibly two, if you need, like, same sport conflict. <laughs> I, I think that's hilarious. And, and the fact that, you know, both Brenda Novak and Susan Mallory, who don't um, obviously aren't copying each other, both included them, must mean that they uh, are, are really prevalent. <laughs> it's true. I mean, clearly this person knows more than we do about what's going on with bikes in small California towns. All right. I, I, I concede. I, you're, you're I will now expect, in fact, I will be disappointed. I may even mention in my future reviews, I don't understand why the small town doesn't have a professional cyclist. <laughs> I think that in the future, you know, since you're so open to receiving suggestions, I would like to suggest that in the future, instead of grades, you give these small town romances a certain number of bicycles. So five bicycles is a really good book. But if there is not a professional cyclist, it's only going to get two bicycles. Well, I think every uh, small town uh, Southern California uh, book must include some reference to a bicycle. Absolutely. Even if it's just the heroine doing crunches. <laughs> Can I just say how much I love reader mail or listener mail? It's like my favorite thing. Okay. Here is another one. This person is looking for suggestions. So I'll, I'll read part of this letter. Dear Sarah and Jane. Thank you so much for your podcast that I only recently discovered and in good time too. I recently spent some days in hospital and your podcast saved me from a noisy roommate and her family. I would put on one of your podcasts and listen listen to your dulcet tones as I drifted off to a morphine-induced sleep. I listened to as much as I could before falling asleep but would like to think that the rest of the podcasts have been uploaded into my brain Johnny Mnemonic style. I figured I would also ask a question to give a point to this whole email. I am a contemporary girl all the way. My auto reads are Rachel Gibson, Susan Mallory, Sarah Mayberry, Susan Elizabeth Phillips. Do you have any suggestions of other newish authors I could try? Thanks again, guys. I really love the podcast. Love, Nikki. I have a lot of suggestions, but I know that your list is probably like automatically populated. <laughs> well, uh, she didn't mention Jill Chavez. Yep. I'd recommend Lisa Clay Passes, um, uh, Blue Eyed Devil, and Smooth Talking Stranger. And then if she wants, she can go back and read 
um, what's the first one? Sugar Daddy. In that series. Sugar Daddy. Sugar Daddy. Um, well, that's not my favorite um, of the series, but so I would suggest she could either start with Smooth Talking Stranger and then read Blue Eye Devil, or she could read Blue Eye Devil and then Smooth Talking Stranger, but I think Sugar Daddy should be read last. And then, um, uh, then obviously, um, uh, Shannon Stacy, mm-hmm. her Kowalski series, I think Helen K. Demons, um, West Virginia series. I love Karina Bliss, Ellen Hartman. Those are a super romance authors who I think are sensitive and funny and writing stories similar, not ex- exactly, but similar to Sarah Mayberry. So those would be my recommendations off the top of my head. Yeah, that would be all of mine too, which is why I made Jane go first because it just saves me work. Um, I'm a little hesitant to recommend Julie James because all of the authors that Nikki mentioned are more smaller town, smaller community with the exception of Susan Elizabeth Phillips. But Julie James writes great contemporary romance set in Chicago that I think James in a lot of ways occupies a bit of a unique space because her books are very specific. They're about the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago. And they are very much contemporary metropolitan, cosmopolitan, I probably would be the, the better word for that books. They, they are very much about being in the city of Chicago. The city of Chicago is an increasing character in the books, I think. And they're also very glamorous. So you have a sort of a, a merge of glamour and the community that that is created around the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office. And they're also one of the few lawyer books that Jane likes, which is you know quite a recommendation. In fact, if they don't put that on the cover, these are the only lawyer books I like. Jane Litt. I'll be very sad. And also all the cover models have really awesome dresses, which I'm totally jealous of because... I could not wear those without many, 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 many pairs of spanks. But, Ju- but Julie James is funny, and I think that that fits in Susan Elizabeth Phillips. And I don't think that she's any more glamorous than Susan Elizabeth Phillips. That's um, true. She and, also and, uh, has some, have some glamour and luxury and, and wealth. But I, I think that um, there's a kind of a community feel. Like So we had uh, a Romantic Times convention, and Julie James was one of our contemporary panelists because we've been pushing contemporary books for many years. And... Um, one of the things that she said is that, you know, she writes about um, a small subset of Chicago, their own little community. So it's not so much that it's set in a small town, but you can still kind of derive that community feel um, in her books. Uh, Another author, uh, Molly O'Keefe, she's very much like Susan Elizabeth Phillips, only I think she has a more kind of pro-female type of story that she's telling. And also Uh, Sarah Morgan would probably appeal to Nikki because Sarah Morgan's books are that mix of Harlequin Presents luxury and a great deal of emotion inside each one. Yeah. And some, if you want to go back, uh, Kathleen O'Reilly and um, Joe Lee also write kind of in the, in the overview of Sarah Mayberry. Yes. All right. Last one. Dear Sarah and Jane. I was listening to your most recent podcast. What do you think about the trend of gifting ebooks? I love sending an ebook to a friend or family member as just a no reason gift or to cheer them up, but it feels like a letdown on a birthday or a holiday since you can't wrap it up and put it under the tree. I read ebooks almost exclusively, and last year my mother was on the computer Christmas Day buying me ebooks so I would see them I wouldn't see them in my email. She also printed up the cover art, taped it to an empty DVD case, and wrapped the case. 
On a different note, I think e-readers are great gifts. My husband and I gave our moms Nook Simple Touches for Mother's Day. My mom loves it because she's an avid reader and typically bought hardcovers as soon as they were released. They're cheaper as e-books and the Nook is easier for her to hold because she has arthritis in her hands. My mother-in-law isn't tech-savvy at all. She learned to email this year. She has no problem navigating an e-reader and she's able to download library books with no issues. As for gifting books, I give a lot of Lori Nataro and David Sedaris books. Laughter is a great gift. Keep up the great podcasts. Even more would be great from Elise. If we did more podcasts, it would get nothing done, but it'd be really fun. And Jane would no longer be my friend because I'd bug the hell out of her. But thank you. I agree with you that ebooks don't have the tangible weight of a gift. Um, I love giving gift credit to ebook stores for the holidays. And I think your mom was really smart to put book covers on DVD cases and wrap them up as gifts. That's a really cute idea. What I did, and my husband hated this, I saved some really big boxes filled with packing peanuts and packing supplies, which are his nemesis. He hates packing peanuts. He hates packing supplies. And when I gave him ebooks, I printed up the certificate that um, explained how to download the book with a redemption code. One of the options at most retailers, including Amazon and Barnes & Noble, is to have the gifted book emailed to you so that you can print it out and give it as a gift and you can put it in a card or whatever. I put the download certificate in the bottom of an absolutely enormous, largely empty box filled with packing peanuts and made him dig for it because I'm a giant asshole. And the first time I did it, he was like, oh, you suck. And then the next night of Hanukkah, when I did it again, he was like, seriously, you suck. But it was hilarious and my kids thought it was really funny. So there's always the trickery option or hiding the certificate. There's always going to be something paper you can give when you give an ebook. And I would like to think that most people who are avid readers are, are, are also aware that even though the ebook isn't tangible, being given a book is always an awesome gift. But like you, Jane and I also do give books as just for no reason. And so to give a book on a holiday, it has to be something particularly special or a set of something. And it's a lot easier, I think, to give gift credit as a, as a gift to someone that's more weighty because I know Jane and I give, give books to people like left and right just because it's an easy, no reason gift, as you put it. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because I have this preference of giving physical gifts or physical books as well. And um, usually I give children's books because most of my in real life friends are mothers, parents. And that's a book that they can read together. But I realized that after this Christmas that I would not want a real book or a physical book because I'm a digital reader. So sometimes those types of gifts, while you are thinking, hey, I want to give a gift that they'll appreciate, they might appreciate the digital copy more. And I do think your mom was really clever in how to give those types of gifts. I I, I guess digital gifts are kind of like gift cards, you know. They um, aren't very physically uh, weighty. But uh, if you give the right one, it will uh, be just as meaningful. I also think that giving books, the way that e-books are given is going to start to change. I know one company that was just starting out last fall that didn't really seem to make as much of an impact as I had wanted to was going to give gift cards of specific books so that you would get a little card of that specific book and then you would go to a specific site for that company and then pick which one you wanted and it would redirect you to the retailer to buy the format that you wanted. So you would be able to give somebody the card of the book. And I think that in the future, more retailers like Amazon or Barnes & Noble, if they have the money to do this, will begin printing gift cards for specific books for people to buy and give to one another. Because if you... I mean, have you seen the presentation for some gift cards? I mean, even sometimes just a store will give you all this extra free packaging to make this 
gift card into this big old thing with a big old bow. I think that bookstores, particularly the um, online dominant retailers, are going to start printing up gift cards that look like a specific book or a set of books so that you can customize what they look. And I know that there are some, I know Amazon for particular can also allow you to customize what the gift cards look like. I think that the physical card will become more prevalent, even though then it's a piece of plastic. You have to figure out how to recycle. And that's all for this week's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone who wrote in and sent really cool email and interesting questions and secret information about small town California bikers. We really appreciate your mail. You're contacting us. That's really cool. If you want to send us an email, it's sbjpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also call and leave a message at our Google Voice number, which is 1-201-371-DBSA. Please make sure when you call that you leave your name and where you're calling from so that we can work your message into a future podcast. The music that you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. You can find her on Twitter at Sassy Outwater. This is called Pro Terescu or Reels, and it's by Dunn and Doris. I'll have information about where you can find them online and where you can buy this and other music that's featured on the podcast. And please make sure to go check out the podcast entry if you've downloaded this podcast through a feed or through iTunes because there is a special statement and funny story from Lauren Willig about how her books came to not be chiclet, plus really cool cover reveals of what the book almost looked like and purses that we can all envy. One last reminder that you can also talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash dbsapodcast if you would like to hang out on the Facebook. And finally, wherever you are, Jane and I wish you the very best of reading and a happy new year. 